number one radio station. You know what I am talking about is Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Mastani, at Aaron Mastani on Twitter. Today I'm joined by James Butler, senior uh, senior editor, right? Still yeah. senior editor? <laughs> yes, you haven't yes. got rid of me, you haven't done Steve Jobs? I haven't ascended to godhood or anything like that. And fellow co-founder of Navarro Media at Pierce Palace. Hi, James. Uh, we're also joined, we have the great pleasure of being joined by Katerina Principe, is that right? That is right. Principe? Okay. Principe. Principe. It's okay. Principe, okay. <laughs> um, and you are on Twitter as at Principe. Yes. Principe. Katerina uh, is a social media activist from Portugal. She's a member of Bloco de Esquerda mm-hmm. uh, and Die Linke in Germany and has co-edited Europe in Revolt with Basca Sunkara, which is out now with Hay Market Books. And it's that anthology of essays which informs today's discussion. Katerina and I met at the first, for the first time at the World Transformed, yes. the Momentum Fringe event. Fantastic, wasn't it? It was really amazing. The mood was great. Yes. You had a good time? I had a great time. And uh, I, I got really inspired. <laughs> oh, wow. There you go. Uh, and I guess we will, of course, this anthology is a little bit older. It was released how long ago? A few months ago? Yeah. It came out in the by the end of June. Right. But I think we will probably integrate some momentum, some of Corbynism. There is an essay in there by Hilary Wainwright on, um, on Corbynism into today's discussion. I also want to take the opportunity now to address why I've got something of a hoarse voice. There was a labelist karaoke on Tuesday. We had to sing D-Ream, I think about 15 times on loop. <laughs> it was pretty remarkable, actually. I, I got a recording on Instagram. I was going to get recorded from Instagram. The thing is, you know when you're pissed and you... Excuse me, sorry, Ofcom. You, um, you... Sorry for listeners offended about me using that word. You know when you turn the phone on its side and on your iPhone, you need to keep it like that. And there was like hundreds of these like suited 20-year-olds going, things can only get better. And this happened about 20 times, several hours of this. And the DJ at one point was doing the Neil Kinnock line, right? He was going, we're all right. We're all... And they were all saying, we're all right. And then there was chance of Tony, Tony. Anyway, I joined it. sounds in. like hell. I, it was pretty fun. You know, when, when, when you're on the other side and you're winning, I mean, who cares, right? It's kind of funny. Um, but anyway, that... We had some we had some great conversations, but also a few drinks over the last few days. Great <laughs> fun. Uh, we'll talk about that another time. To start, Katerina, your book, um, Europe in Revolt, co-edited with Bascar, is an anthology of essays on the state of the left, both in and beyond Parliament in Europe right now. I suppose its anchor is the crisis of 2008 and its aftermath, which changed since then, seeming to be the metric by which things are measured. Why did you co-edit this book now? After all, the crisis is eight years old. Um, we're almost 10 years into it. It only took four years for the National Socialists to emerge in Germany. Why are we still having these quite embryonic conversations, fundamentally, eight years after one of the biggest crises of capitalism of all time? Um, so, first of all, I think the reason why we, we, we edit this book right now was because Haymarket <laughs> invited us to edit a book on, on the subject. Since there is actually nothing uh, that is uh, from, from the last years that actually uh, gives you an idea of the different developments in the left across Europe. Um, and at the same time, yes, it is true, we're, we're still having sort of embryonic conversations, but at the same time, we're not, because there have been pretty important experiences during the last years, Citizen in Greece being one of them, and also the problems and the difficulties of that experience that sort of informed the new discussion. So I think basically what happened was after the referendum and after the summer uh, of 2015 and what happened with the Syriza government by them uh, abiding to apply a third memorandum, um, there was a new discussion on basically on strategy. So what does that, what does, what does that mean? It means like are we doing things right in the places in Europe where we're trying to build broad left parties that have like, you know, radical policies, but they're also like reformist or reform oriented together with a lot of different people that are also revolutionaries and so on. Are we doing this right? Or it's not worth it to actually have those types of political subjects and we should just build like extra, extra parliamentary work. And that was a discussion that popped out after Citizen. And so this book aims to be a sort of an answer to that. Excellent. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's clear that this is one of the, the debates that's occurring throughout the essays in this book. I mean, it, it takes into uh, account sort of 
the deployment of these political strategies within both kind of core and periphery nations of, of, of Europe. And, you know, one of the things that, that we often fail to do, you know, we will often talk about sort of the political dynamics of a whole continent, but very rarely talk about Europe as a whole continent. And I think, I think one of the things that this book allows us to do is, is talk a bit more broadly about that. And one of the things that, that perhaps is in there less, and it's, it's much harder actually to get, get a grasp on, is actually the, the periphery to, towards Europe's east, which is something you mentioned in the, in the introduction to the book, but, but sort of is, is left unattacked because it's an, it's an extremely important political question, especially, I think, for the left in Germany, which often mm-hmm. relies on labour from the relatively new accessioned countries. And, and the politics of migration, of course, depends mm-hmm. on the attitudes in those countries as well. So I suppose one of the things to, that we could talk about is, is what the dynamics are of kind of left political formations across uh, you know, across Europe and, and, and that are addressed in the book. Because it seems to me that, the, that there are several characteristics which are shared across Europe. Um, one of which is, you know, the, the building on the legacy of communist parties, uh, you know, after sort of after, you know, in a post-illegal context, but also a post-Soviet context. Uh, and increasingly a post-social democratic context as well. So the breakdown of a social compact or agreement between sort of capital and labour, which is particularly obtained, uh, you know, in the north of Europe. There's a very, very strong essay in the book uh, on politics in Sweden, which I think is very instructive uh, for, for British audiences. Uh, as well as kind of the, the immediate political questions, sort of the, the struggle against kind of constraints of the euro and the European Union, two slightly different things. Um, but notably also uh, difficulties in bridging the politics of migration, uh, which is a key political question, I think, for all of these left formations and one that is not necessarily easily answered, actually. It's one that, that, that the left keeps running into trouble on and is unable to, to kind of deal with very well. Um, and the relationship between these political articulations uh, and vehicles and social movements uh, on the ground. And this is a question that is, again, touched on in all of these essays, um, but, but which is very difficult to answer. Uh, and, the, and, you know, the, the, the book is kind of bookended, really, by essays on Syriza and Podemos, who, which are the two uh, phenomena that have come closest to power and uh, Stathis Kouvelakis writes in the book about, you know, Syriza has breached the question of power but hasn't answered it, hasn't answered how to, to be a party of the movements or what the relationship is between those movements. So I, I, there's a lot of stuff there that I've just, just <laughs> yes. uh, rambled on about. But I suppose one of the, the things to talk about Europe as a whole, there's, it, it's implied throughout the book but there's relatively little explicitly stated on the kind of tra- transnational relationships between these movements. Uh, is there one? Um, that's a difficult question Um, I think there is one there is one at the more institutional level if you want to so a lot of these parties not all but a lot of these parties that the book covers are members of the European Parliament or have some form or one or two or three elected MEPs so there's this institutional relation there's another institutional relation which is called the European Left Party uh, that some of these parties are members of the European Left Party is at the moment under um, a very big moment of questioning itself um, not only because um, it has within it parties that have at the moment or are developing different strategies which I think is a normal thing given the concrete conditions that the countries are in you know in a core periphery relation within the EU it's very I, I, I wouldn't expect anything else than uh, for different parties on the left to be developing different strategies. Um, so it's under like a current um, questioning about what it is and so on and what's its role because uh, it has existed for many years, but it's actually not uh, been able to apply like any sort of like common European uh, policy, movement, campaign, whatever. Um, on the other hand, I think there have been some very interesting experiences on the last years, but then again, we're talking about the extra-parliamentary experiences, right? Where a lot of these parties also were part of, like, for example, if we're talking about Blockupy in Germany, um, which is like the anti-crisis protest in Germany that happened during the last years, uh, Die Linke had a very important role 
in Blockupy. Also, the unions had an important role. So it wasn't just, it was coming, of course, from like the extra parliamentary, more anarchisty, autonomisty, uh, related or oriented milieus, but it was done together with the parties. And that is a very interesting experience, I find it, because it aims to like tackle the problem at the at the belly of the beast, so to say, like in Germany and questioning Germany's policies about what has been uh the relation of Germany towards the rest of Europe. But there's been also other things. I would like to mention that, for example, in 2012, there was, it was an attempt, it didn't go super well, it was small, but it was important for Portugal and Spain, for example. There was a multi-state general strike. Um, also, in one of the years, I think 2013, during Blockupy, there was at the same time something called the People's United Against the Troika, where in I think it was 100 or 120 other cities in Europe, there were protests against austerity. Um, and I would also like to say that, uh, and I think that's a very important thing that died out for the obvious reasons during all the months that uh, the Greek government was negotiating with the EU we uh, experienced massive you know for example in Ireland it was amazing like massive waves of protests of solidarity with the Greek people right where people understood that what you know what was happening in Greece directly affects them in their home country so that's what I would say exists at the transnational level we could say that there's now a new experience uh, that is called the Plan B, that uh, some important figures of the European left, like Oscar Lafontaine, Mélenchon, uh, have joined in to talk about the possibility of how do we coordinate if it is possible in Euro exit and so on, on to the left, because I would also like to say that I think we normally talk about the possibility of exiting the euro or the EU as if, if as if it would only if it only could take one direction and it can take several it can be from the left from the right it can be coordinated or isolated it can be imposed or self-determined so there there's many ways of how if this come if you know if this comes to be how this can happen so this is also a transnational attempt of trying to coordinate a possible necessity of exiting so i think this would be the the experiences that this parties may not, you know, they may not be as parties fully involved in it, but definitely central figures of this parties and the policy, the policies or the politics of this parties totally inform this experiences also. In regards to the Eurozone, what's your personal view about how sustainable it is? Um, not <clears throat> sustainable, it's never not sustainable. was. Uh, no, I think... And is um, that something that you, you sense amongst the essayists that contribute to this anthology? Sorry, I didn't understand your is question. That is, that, is, that a, is that a sort of prevailing sense with David Broder, Princes and his pieces on Italy? Do you think most of the contributors would agree with that, that it's not a tenable economic project? So I think what... what so just to go again where we, we kind of began, um, what Syriza brought us was... Um, You know, a lot of people on the left saw it as like, okay, this is a failure or something and we can only, you know, take like bad conclusions from what happened. I think Syriza... Uh, the experience of Syriza um, also opened. It clo there were closures, but there were also openings on that, on that, with that experience. Um, one of them being that um, the mask of the European integration project <clears throat> as a social project has fallen. And so it's much more clear today the, that the EU is a neoliberal project, is a neoliberal po project that is composed, yes, it's a transnational uh, bloc, but it's a transnational bloc composed by competing nation states, that throughout the last 30 to 40 years, uh, the process of European integration have meant very clearly a devaluation of labor, uh, both at core and center, but mainly a, a destruction of the productive sectors of the periphery, transforming them into economies of non-tradable goods that can export the products produced at, this, at, at the core of Europe, right? And the euro was a mechanism to reinforce this already very unequal architecture of the, of European integration. Uh, so if we look, there's figures about this. I don't know them by heart right now, but um, if we look at 
how the euro was introduced, we can see that the German D-Mark was devalued in comparison to, for example, the, the lira in, in Italy or the drachma in, in Greece. And what does this mean? It means, on the one hand, of course, a devaluation uh, of, uh, of the labor value in Germany, but it means that Germany managed to assert itself as like the world export um, um, country. Weltmeister. Weltmeister, exactly. That's the word I was looking for in English. Um, um, and, and, and this only works because of this core periphery dependence and relation between the countries in Europe. Um, so in my opinion, the euro is, is a tool of inequality. And I don't see exiting the euro as an end in itself in the sense of like, I don't think one currency is per se more progressive than another. It is just more progressive if it allows you forms of, you know, a way of implementing uh, better policies in the relation between classes, if you want to talk like this, but uh, <laughs> if you want to say it this way. Um, so uh, what I think is that exiting the euro might be an essential tool, especially for periphery countries, in order to regain some sort of sovereignty on having some sort of control of their productive sector again. Do you think, quick response to that, yeah. do you think that those countries, so I think Italy is probably the most likely now mm -hmm. in the short term, short to medium term, do you think those countries by leaving would have more leverage than staying in and negotiating en masse with the North as somebody like Varoufakis wants to happen? Because it seems to me Varoufakis wants to play a game of poker, but you've got a terrible hand, whereas you can just walk away and leave the table. So what's, what's your thoughts about that strategically in terms of what's a, a better way of proceeding? I think we need to... Um, um, so, none. I mean, of course, the Southern European countries do not have a lot of leverage. I mean, Greece had a geopolitical level, leverage. Portugal has no leverage at all, <laughs> basically. Um, it's a small country to the West, you know, geopolitically it's not important. Um, Spain and Italy, of course, have more leverage also at the economic level. Um, however, I think we need to take a little bit of a step away from that discussion, Do not from that discussion, but from doing that discussion in that way. So what is my, what my thoughts on this are that any form of policy, left government, whatever form it takes, movement, that actually wants to end austerity needs some things. Some of these things are, and for Italy this is also very valid, one of these things is renegotiating and cutting off a part of the debt, the public debt, that is illegitimate. Um, another thing would be to have some sort of public control of the banking system. Another thing would be to have some sort of actual control on the restructuring of a of productive sector by, for example, in Portugal this is very clear, uh, renationalizing a lot of the strategic sectors of the economy that have been privatized since the crisis of 2008. Such as? Such as uh, energy, water, um, the planes, the post, the mail. Yeah. So all of this has been privatized in Portugal. So we need to take control of that. Nothing of this is possible within the framework of the EU today. So when we're building campaigns for what we think are the essential measures that can overthrow austerity in the long run, we're actually colliding with the limitations of the European project, of the euro and of the budgetary treaty. Like, you know, the discussions just uh, the last months that uh, there was this threat to apply sanctions to Portugal and, 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 and Spain for having overcome, of course, <laughs> their uh, deficit limits. Um, I think that didn't happen because of Spain, right? I mean, would have Spain have a different political composition? At, at the moment, we would have gotten sanctions. It's not really because of Portugal. But the thing was, of course, at the moment where Rajoy wins the elections again, is trying to form a government, there's no... Uh, I mean, there's... It would be a bit mad from the European Commission to try to, like, sanction that, mm. that political moment, right? So th the truth is we're under... Um, um, how do you call this? As I, a coat, you know, like that you can't move in. Uh, shackled? Yeah. So shackled. Yeah, okay, maybe. Yeah, I just want to uh, come in on a couple of things and then move discussion on. Um, it, one of the things that strikes me actually about in, in terms of the commonality between these, these movements across Europe is, is demographic. 
right? It unites a, an older demographic, a kind of older left, which has sort of seen it, you know, has seen the, the course of the kind of the, the sort of late 90s and early 2000s, the sort of uh, what for us was the, the Blair government, but, but uh, true across Europe, um, united with the, the, the youth who have come through kind of the, the, who've grown up around the crisis, who are produced from the crisis. So there's a sort of middle generation who are missing, who are forming, who, who, are, who are not quite there. And that, that to me seems something that's true in Greece, uh, in Spain, uh, here, and certainly true in France as well. Um, the, the other thing I, I, I suppose I, I want to say is, is it's interesting, Aaron, when you say you know, you, oh, you can just get up and leave the table in terms of the poker game. The thing is, you can't just get up and leave the table. That's the political problem. Right, exactly. It's the difficulty of exit in any form. Um, as you know, you know, <laughs> our country is currently engaged in an extremely right-wing exit from the, the European Union, and it's finding it difficult. A left-wing one uh, would be even even more difficult. Sure, difficulty, uh, not impossibility, uh, though, right? That's sure. Well, nothing is impossible. Um, <laughs> well, we shall see. Um, I, I suppose one of the questions to hover over this, and we don't need to answer it, is, is but if we're thinking in very large terms, is the question of why the EU comes to exist in the first place, what it, what it achieves after the Second World War, <clears throat> what it's designed to do. Um, and that's not a, I, I don't mean a kind of starry-eyed, it's designed to end war between nations. I mean, sort of economically, how it responds to a changing global picture. And so the question of whether uh, a, a simply a national uh, uh, socialist politics can, I don't mean a national socialist, I mean <laughs> socialism in one country, uh, can overcome the, the, these now highly globalised capital flows and the, the, the sort of lack of restrictions we place on international capital. So the international perspective, I think, is, is, is an important one. Um, but, but to sort of kind of uh, step on a little, mm. um, I, I guess, and, and maybe this actually impacts on, on that question, you talk in your introduction a bit about the kind of the, the, the failures of social democratic parties, decline of communist parties. And our current conjuncture, these new times in which we exist, uh, suggest that kind of division between reformists and revolutionaries is not a politically insurmountable one in the way that it might have been in the past. Um, and sometimes, indeed, the distinction seems to collapse in practice. Uh, and yet, at times, you maintain the distinction. So I wonder what the use is uh, of maintaining that distinction is uh, and, and, and what it should tell us about our operation now. Oh, wow, that's that's a that's a big question. <laughs> yeah. I want to say some just uh, two two remarks um, on the question of leaving the table. Um, actually, um, Varoufakis wrote like a month ago an article for Jacobin uh, explaining what Diem is and how mm. they want to go about things, and he actually says, well, you know, we should try, and then if not, we should just leave the, t the table. Well, the problem with that is that leaving the table has very serious political consequences. And so I think if we want to talk about disobedience, because that's what it means, you know, like you go into negotiations and then you leave the table if, they, if you don't achieve what you want to, um, we need to politicize disobedience. And to politicize, because that means that imagine that a country like Greece or Portugal or whatever, uh, but let's say Greece and Portugal, which are like the, the periphery of the periphery, as I normally say, would leave the EU right now, we would go under very harsh conditions, this, the, at least the, the, the next, you know, the first months or maybe years, you know. So the only way we can do that is if we have a popular movement that is willing to take that chance and that understands that it might be hard in the beginning to leave, but austerity is forever if we say within. Because, for example, our public debt has just been growing and growing in Portugal, no matter do you what not think, Do you not think the experience of Brexit sort of disproves that? Because the whole, the whole idea around, for instance, the idea of Greece leaving the Eurozone, it's not the next day. That negotiation may take five, ten years. So clearly people can put plans in place, movements can be built, alliances and coalitions can be created. I mean, it's not like, you know, July 1st, Greece decides to sack off the EU. Next day, oh my God, you know, we're going to have to have rations and billions sent over by, you know, Aeroflot, by, you know, FSB agents and Putin. I mean, you know, that, that was kind of, that was, that was the false dichotomy that was being offered. And that's clearly not useful for Greece and it's certainly not useful for the ECB and for the EU. Yeah, f sure. But I mean, w I think first, uh, I think we're not just 
and this is a very concrete analysis, like the the weight and the power that Britain has negotiating its conditions of staying or re, of remaining or leaving the EU is not at all the same, the power that Portugal or Greece has in determining in what conditions do we leave or do we stay. This is very important. Right? I mean, I, I'm struck at how, how remarkably little leverage we've got, actually. And so if you look at the comments coming out from people like Renzi or people around um, the Commission, they're not keen on giving us anything. So, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't think we'll get much and I don't think Greece would get much, but still the process would take procedurally, you know, at least five years. So, Because you're exiting the European Union through a process of a referendum and not, and this is a very different process from what Greece was under right. last year, right? right? So it's like you elected a left-wing government, you're under uh, the Troika, you're under a bailout program, and you only have a tiny, tiny space of maneuvering, um, and you're going there and saying, you know, we need, you know, we need to renegotiate this. So it's it's a completely different thing. Right. And and the threat at the time was if you do not uh, oblige with our program, you're going to be kicked out. And that's a different thing. There's one. That's why I'm saying there's very different exits, and very. That's why this makes it all a so bit more complicated. It's incomparable for you comparing Brexit. It's very, to yeah. It's very. It's. I mean, it's. It's comparable in the sense that it questions the European project, but it's incomparable in the sense of like the dynamics of the processes themselves, the outcomes of what it can be, the processes, the leverage. It's very, yeah. It's very hard for me to compare those two. But I, I just wanted to say something. Uh, you're talking about also, James. Um, um, you said something about um, the processes. Oh, sorry, the process of globalization and so on. Well, I think there is um, a question that I think the left has kind of like overlooked for the last years because it's a complicated one, which has been the role of the nation states in the process of the internationalization of capital and how states were not bypassed by this process. They were actual central actors, and they are still the central actors in the form of how capital is organized. And it and, and that became even clearer after the crisis in 2008, right? Where, um, you know, for all the, the people who defended that states didn't matter anymore and globalization was the new thing and uh, um, the, the level, the national, the national level or the nation state level didn't matter anymore. What happened with the states in, after the crisis was exactly that uh, it contradicted all the neoliberal theories that the state disappeared. On the contrary, the state had a, you know, a, a central, most important role on giving an answer in commas to this crisis. So what was the role of the state? It just stopped being what we, we were used for the last 50 years, which is actually a moment of, um, was an extra, extraordinary moment and not, not an ordinary moment of like having states that provide social welfare, that have some sort of, you know, apply labor regulations and so on, to states that fully De destroy the welfare, deregulate labor, and at the same time transform private debt into public sovereign debt and bail out banks. And so that has been a central role of the state. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with you insofar as I, I would probably subscribe to uh, what we would call a neo-realist uh, assessment of the role of the state and something like the EU in actually shoring up state sovereignty after, after say, the Second World War. It, it lends a new legitimacy to the states and so on. One of the things that strikes me in Europe, actually, is that the EU's competencies around economic policy function as a kind of insurance, right? Like, actually, it allows states to, within certain boundaries, set its economic policy, but should you go too far, then it gets mm. sucked up to the, the international level and you can't do anything about it. It seems to me an obvious function of the European Union. Um, and one of the things that's striking about globalization is precisely that it doesn't end the state. I mean, the point is that you have different regimes within states which allow capital to function internationally. Uh, and and so my point is that to operate, you know, to, to, to operate on a global level requires actually quite a granular analysis of how states operate. Um, but I, I suppose one of the, one of the things to, 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 to talk about there is we have seen sort of the, these kind of autonomous social movements arising in, in, in each country with, with kind of an international sense, with, as we've, we've talked about, kind of sense of solidarity between these states. Um, and they've, they've confronted the, that national problem and, and the problem of political power uh, 
in quite a similar way, actually, in, in where, it, where it has happened, and this is true of, of Podemos and Syriza, that they, they confront actually the mechanisms of, of the state and find themselves having to operate according to a different rationality than social movements do. And so, I mean, it's one of the things that's striking throughout the book is people saying, oh, well, we can bridge these two. And I think, well, we might be able to bridge these two, but it doesn't It doesn't seem necessarily to work in practice. The, the final essay in the book on Podemos by Luke Stobart is very, very critical of Podemos's kind of centralizing tendencies. Mm-hmm. But it struck me when reading it that, that these are measures that are often necessary to take to operate on, on a national stage. And, and I wonder, so maybe we can discuss, I wonder how practical it is to to make that bridge between those two kinds of operation. So I think that that actually might be related to your former question that I ended up Mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. commenting on. Um, The question of uh, um, reform and revolution and all of that. So um, what we're arguing here and what I think the book, and I think it's, I mean, you asked me whether it still makes sense to make that distinction. I think it does. Uh, make sense to make that distinct that 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 distinction because in the end um, there's moments where having different uh, traditional traditions or um, tra- ideological educations, if you want, does inform inform different strategies. Um, for example, on the question of the state, right? So, for example, to put it in a very clear way, um, or to answer that question with maybe a clear question <laughs> is, um, can we actually end capitalism, change the world exclusively, exclusively through the state or not, right? And I think tendentially, and this is tendentially, um, uh, more reformist approaches <clears throat> think, yeah, we need electoral movements, we need to take over the state apparatus, which is not taking power, right? It's taking state apparatus, and this is also a, a important distinction I think it's important to do. Um, and then we can operate there, you know, and then we, if we have, like, good states, stronger states, we, you know, stronger left states, then we can slowly reform by reform build up to a moment where eventually somehow um, um, the world will change. And, um, yeah. And then you have other approaches that say... Um, there's other approaches that say we, we shouldn't even touch the state, right? Okay, so we should do everything apart from that state. And then there's the approach that I myself uh, find or that I find myself in, which says we need to use all the instruments and all the levels we need that we, we have for political struggle. And that means we need to try to win over somehow power through the structures of the state that exist today. Uh, but we cannot forget that in the end, the idea is to make the state pointless if we actually want to change society. And that comes also from what is the state, what the analysis of what is the state. So is the state something that is fully neutral and can be changed? Or uh, is the state actual the political arm of capital that organizes it and so on and so forth? And then there's several levels to it. There's the, the deep state. There's all of this. You know, and and. If we want to actually get rid of all those mechanisms, we need to build parallel structures to that. And I think that is, in the end, uh, the question that I don't think the book solves, because there are no clear... um, I think it points towards a direction, but there are no clear examples of it. However, I think that what started to happen in Greece in the last years was something of the sort. So, at the same time, you had a political left-wing party, radical party, with, you know, a reformist, a good a good left-wing reformist agenda program, um, disputing state power. Uh, at the same time, because of the dimension of the crisis, you had groups, um, and, and there were a lot of different people with different ideological traditions that were members of these groups, building on the ground the structures of solidarity. What is what? What were those structures? They were uh, solidarity clinics and pharmacies. They were very interesting ones. Markets without middlemen, right? So where the producers sell directly to the consumers. And the interesting thing of it, and there are studies on it, is that the patterns of consumption and production started to change in Greece because of those experiences. Um, they were, you know, cultural uh, experiences where people came together and so on. So. If you want, these were embryonic experiences of 
a dual power situation mm -hmm. where there were the experience of building parallel structures to the state because the state wasn't giving necessary answers to people's lives during the crisis, where this uh, structure started to operate and function. Um, and for a while there, um, there was even like a sort of a hybrid organization called Solidarity for All that sort of like interlinked the party that was disputing state power and the movements and the, and the structures of solidarity. Um, so I would say that for a moment there, this strategy was actually, you know, starting to work. The problem was that, in my opinion, um, the Syriza-led government chose to, um, instead of relying on those structures that were already starting to be in place and a, the possibility of a growing social movement, instead of relying on that and trying exactly this strategy out, they were afraid to take that step mm -hmm. and therefore mm -hmm. decided to abide with a with a mm -hmm. with a with a troika. Um, but so this discussion in practice uh, was starting to happen in yes, Greece. Yes, you see, and, and I think that's striking about these solidarity networks is now they find themselves actually in opposition very often to, to, mm -hmm. to Syriza. Um, and you know, I, I know people who who were very very hopeful about sort of Syriza's promises around you know, migration camps and things like this, and they, they find you know, and this isn't a gotcha moment. This isn't saying ha ha ha. Well, I told you that that Syriza would inevitably betray you. That is not no. useful. This is not a, no, a useful thing to say. All. But but what it what it brings up is the problematic is 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 this question of the logic of state power is extremely compelling to even you know these are people who have been communists for a long time these are people who come from radical left backgrounds who are not uh, you know who are educated you would think about about the way these things work but the logic of government is is such that it brings up these problems uh, and it is it's not easy to face them uh, and it's not not easy to find the answer to them and and so so I I think I you know. Syriza experience is, is, is a painful experience that teaches us these lessons again, and we should learn them. Um, I, I wonder here, you know, I, I think, you know, you two were at the, the Momentum event over the, the course Still of the past, Yeah, <laughs> indeed, mm -hmm. over the course of the past few days. And I think one of the things <clears throat> that's interesting here is, is, is to think about this kind of embryonic movement here, which faces a, sim a similar yeah. problem in some ways. Because, so, people talk about, you know, Labour being in power or not being in power, but the truth is Labour is in power in a lot of this country. There are a lot of Labour-run councils, and they're not they're not all, or indeed even mostly, uh, very good ones. It's very difficult to bring people's attention to local politics. It's often treated as unpolitical matter of kind of local administration. But in fact, you know, the acts of Labour councils around homelessness, around mm -hmm. social provision, around social care have been, you know, appalling in some ways. And what's interesting here, and which makes it difficult to generalise out from, is uh, one, that the national preceded the local in a way that's not true across Europe. There wasn't a kind of social movement that eventually produced a leader and then that leader took, you know, you know took national office. Uh, it's, it's quite the reverse, actually. Sort of this Corbyn happens and then this movement kind of coalesces around him. And that the makeup of British politics is different to its continental counterparts. You have, over the course of the past few days, uh, the PSOE in Spain sort of breaking itself mm -hmm. apart over the question of whether it essentially aligns to the right or the left. Uh, it's it, in some ways a kind of similar question that the Labour Party faces, but in Spain it's the political <coughs> structure is, is different enough that the challenge is outside of the party rather than within it. So many of the people entering Momentum here do, are kind of willing to adopt a kind of rationalist calculation about national, formal, electoral politics, You know, particularly those that come from the social movements and kind of felt the limits of social movements in, in making change without, uh, you know, some kind of electoral engagement. And they're willing to adopt a kind of rationalist calculation and kind of suspend some of their demands um, or, or take on an interesting compromise that has been hitherto quite alien to them. Um, and I find that quite interesting. So the question for me there is how you keep that horizon open, how you step between those different logics. Can I just, can I just say that um, I think that's under stating a little bit 
the Labour left before the rise of Corbyn and their surrounding network. So McDonnell Corbyn clung on in the Houses of Parliament, in the, in the Commons. People like you and me, we were laughing. We were like, you are wasting your time. This is never going to happen. And if they'd made different political choices... Well, I mean, virtually 100 years of history did, right. no, of did course. suggest no, that this was the case. But if they'd made alter- alternative political choices over the course of the last 15 years, this wouldn't have happened, right? Mm. Some what we thought were misguided people clung on to what we thought was an illusion of parliamentary uh, socialism and maybe they were right and also there were networks around them I remember people trying to get Corbyn on the ballot right so he needed the 30 signatures and they were on Facebook and it was an interesting mix actually of Labour people, but also younger activists who just had moved into Labour from the student staff or alter globalisation stuff because there was nothing else. And they would have been the bedrock of a new left party, probably, if it had ever happened. And they were saying, please email your MP or whoever, you know, even if it was just an ex a PPC or a councillor or, you know, whoever, we need to exercise as much influence as possible. We need to get 30 signatures, get him on the ballot so that it can be put to the membership. And even then, Nobody really thought he was going to win. As you probably know, Katerina, he made it by like 90 seconds, the mm-hmm. final signature. Yeah. John McDonald was sort of like having a panic attack. Um, and that's highly serendipitous, right? So I think we, we can't underestimate actually the role those people played. And, you know, when they were on Facebook and Twitter doing that, I was laughing at them, you know? And I was going, this is ridiculous. They're making mugs themselves, right? And I was wrong and they were right and all power to them, right? So I think that's a little bit unfair. Um and yeah, it's a very serendipitous project. And in terms of the local national thing and the the cleavage there, same with Scottish Labour, of course, right? Kezia Dugdale, pretty right wing. Um, Owen Smith actually won in Scotland uh, against Jeremy Corbyn. Most CLP nominations were for Owen Smith, not Jeremy Corbyn. Shows you how right wing Scottish Labour currently is, not just compared to the Corbynistas, but just English Labour generally. But of course, momentum and uh, those supporters of Corbyn can just say, well, this is a factional thing, right? People in local government, councillors tend to be from the right of the party. That, that I mean, that, and I agree with what you're saying, but for them right now, that's an off the shelf, easy response, isn't it? rather than some inherent contradiction within Labour. They'll just say, well, the project now is to get our people in local government and then we can do X. Your implicit point is that they can't do that. And even if they did, it wouldn't make any difference. Well, I mean, the structures of local government in this country are such that there is very, very limited power for, for, for political change that doesn't also operate on the national level. But, you know, I mean, you know, the, the question here is also about whether, uh, you know, whether people... The kind of calculation that people undertake about whether it's right to oppose... Uh, Labour on a local level, where where Labour is doing wrong, um, and some people will say, "Well, no, we have to we have to get the party in power. We can't say anything." <coughs> and to me, that is fatal. It's absolutely fatal. You, you really, you know, in particular because you know Labour isn't Podemos. You know, Podemos is a small, you know, insurgent kind of left. Uh, formation with its own problems but here like labor is a huge thing which has like struggles within it and if you stop criticizing within it then you're gonna lose uh, i don't want to talk too long about I want to say two party. quick things in yeah. response to that first thing is i had a, I had a great line actually at conference and it's very very controversial and you know hopefully the wrong people won't uh, put this in print but it was a great line it said the worst case scenario for us is we win a general election with these mps which is absolutely correct I think. Uh, if you win with the existing infrastructure and these MPs, what kind of programme could genuinely be instituted? Really tough to know. And I think the, the implicit question within what you're saying, and it's a very important point, is how long is it until momentum councillors have to enforce precisely the same measures? Right? And that is actually inevitable. So... With that in mind, and I think we do that on this show quite well because we're so pessimistic, pessimistic and sceptical like all good Marxists, what would we do in response to that? And how politically can you circumvent that or override it? You want to come in, Katerina? Yeah, I would just like to make a um, comment on this. And also that, that actually brings me back, like I was like taking little some notes to actually something that James had before. Um, so... Um, Podemos or Syriza or Die Linke or Bloco, which was actually the first experience in Europe since it was formed in 99, is a particular experience of like joining basically the extra parliamentary left. Not not all of them are like this. It's It has different um, compositions. But it basically the idea is that you join 
left-wing organizations that are critical to Stalinism, uh, that are that under that understand that we need like you know we need to bring into our programs the questions of gender the questions of sexual liberation the questions of environmentalism and all of that um and that uh, occupy a space that the traditional european social democracy has left empty i used to say this is like this is the traditional now liberalized european social democracy right um, because that space, the, the space of actually, the space of labor and welfare was left orphaned for mm. decades mm. in Europe. And so the formation of this party pretends and intends exactly to occupy that space. Um, and so that's why this is this is kind of like the dual, what I call the dual strategy. So on the one hand, you try to win the people that are tired, that voted for like, traditional social democracy, uh, democratic parties for years that are disillusioned. And at the same time, you try to bring them together with the anti-capitalist or, uh, you know, alter globalization movements, uh, especially since 99 and all those different experiences from the acampadas in Spain or the square movement in Greece and so on. So bring this two groups together that tendentially are very, have very different demographics, as you said, and um, also different ways to relate to politics. And that also creates a uh, a complicated thing for these types of parties because, you know, for the radical part of their constituency uh, or the people that would vote for, for example, Bloco, sometimes Bloco works too much like a party like the others. And for the people who are disillusioned with social democracy and want to have a left-wing party, uh, sometimes Bloco is too radical, so it's too few a party like the others, mm -hmm. right? So this brings us into also a strategic debate that we have not solved, and mm -hmm. this is all mm -hmm. still in the solving. However, this strategy comes informed by the idea that social democratic parties have basically all, and, and I think Labour's a particular party in this dynamic, so I don't want to compare it to like the SPD in Germany because it's not the same, much less to the Socialist Party in Portugal, which was formed to stop a revolutionary process, which is a completely different uh, situation. But, um, but, but informed by the idea that these parties have become so entrenched into the, st the state structures that they are themselves part of the state, like this is very clear with PASOK, right, in Greece, like totally clear, um, that it is impossible to change them. So then again, we had a panel uh, during the Momentum Conference. Um, Jacobin put up this panel and uh, about Miliband. And uh, it's, I mean, it's still the question. Can the, you know, there's a um, great comrade and friend, Max, he said uh, he wants... Max Shanley. Max Shanley. Yeah. He says he wants to prove Miliband wrong, right? He wants to prove that you can transform the Labour Party into a socialist party. And Leo Panitch, who was also at that panel, was saying, hmm, I don't think it's possible. I think I agree with Miliband, right? So this is actually the discussion that you're... So I think the formation of all these broad left parties is informed by the idea that these parties cannot be changed into being socialist parties. However, by some historical exception, and I would like to, like... Uh, underline this idea of exception, right? So I don't think that the conclusions we should take from what is happening in labor is that like we should just all give in to uh, give, you know, yeah, <laughs> just yeah, like yeah, leave yeah. our parties, you know, let's go to the social, like do some new form of 21st century entryism into social democratic that's parties. That's not what's happening in labor, but... <laughs> no, 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 that's not. That, that is not. That is not what's no, no. happening I mean, in labor. Of course. That is not. That's what yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's not, it's not what's happening. Yeah. So that's why I, we should not take this... Um, uh, example this 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 um uh, sorry this uh, example of labor as now the rule of what we should do because we don't know if this is going to work and this is up to you right i mean and i don't know i think there are a lot of constraints for labor to actually shift towards what you aim it to be um but I think the experience of trying to change it and the possibility that you have today is completely amazing. <laughs> In response to the councillor's point, we had Adam Ramsey, who is a, obviously is a Green member. He's now in Scotland, Scottish Greens. Uh, and this is when it looked like the Greens would perhaps become the party of the radical left, right? There was a moment in 2014. And we had the exact same conversation around councillors and limits and constraints. And it was they were 
more speculative for them because they didn't actually they have one control they have control they had control of one council in Brighton and that went terribly for precisely these reasons. And he said the lesson learned from that was that they shouldn't aim to win councils, right? Because of these constraints, because of what would you know be the, the ultimate consequence of that, he said we should try and win councillors individually to agglomerate resources for the organisation, hire media profile, full time activists, but that we shouldn't try and win councils. Clearly, Labour can't play that game. It's different stakes. Um, so yeah, you think it's amazing? That's good. I'm very glad to hear it. And it is the exception, right? Because even actually, I think it's in the yeah. is it in the first essay. Um, where the word pacification is used, mm-hmm. which I think I think this radio show was at least the first radio show definitely to use that word, but it's true, right? Labour is yeah. is, is hitherto looking like the unique exception to <laughs> pacification at the moment. Even mm. if this project mm. fails tomorrow, it's still uh, the outlier. James, you really want to? No, no, no. I, I want to move us on and look to the future. Go on. Okay. Well, let um, me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Go, 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 go on. Go. We've got just over t- ten minutes well, left. You're listening to Navarra FM here on Resonance One Hundred Four Point Four FM, London's number one radio station. You're about to hear the dulcet tones of James Butler. It's Benelux. <laughs> yes. So I think there are two things that strike me when looking at Europe, and I, I spoke about this in in the run-up to our referendum here, which is that there is this huge wave of kind of reactionary chauvinist sentiment, this anti-migration politics, the rise of a kind of populist right. And that extends from, you know, Pegida, uh, Swedish yes. you know, Swedish Democrats, uh, AFD, Le Pen, and here UKIP. Um, that, that kind of haunts the edges of the essays here. Like there's an attention to these things in the question of migrant politics. You know, we see in, in the New Yorker now the lionising the, the chair of the, the AfD um, as uh, a kind of legitimate stateswoman. And this is so, so this is really, really dangerous. And I, I, I wonder if there are, you know, if one fears that the right is making great hay of the problems in Europe uh, in a way that the left is kind of only just starting to catch up with. Uh, and so that worries me. Uh, um, maybe we can start there. Yeah, um, well, I, I think we're living, as we all know, of course, in a moment of crisis. And it's not only financial, economic and so on, it's also a crisis of politics. And in all moments of crisis, we've always witnessed a very, um, you know, normal or common uh, experience or dynamic, which is the polarization of politics. Um, Of course, so I would say the right wing in general is tackling on people's very serious and very real grievances, right? Of course, it's giving it the wrong answers, the simplistic wrong answers that in the end will end up not solving anything. I think the European left in general, this might be, and I don't think that that's only for the continental, I think that is for the whole of it, um, has not been able to actually tackle the answers to these problems. So, because because the answers to the very serious grievances and problems are the answers of like, how do we reorganize labor? How do we organize production? How do we rebuild a social state? In a moment of hyper-neoliberalization, the left has not been capable of giving these answers, right? And, And I do believe that one of the reasons why the left was not actually capable of giving these answers properly was because the left was kind of stagnated in its analysis of like wanting to reform the EU and not uh, thinking about any sort of other instruments. And uh, I'm not saying, and I don't think that there can be socialism in one country. Um, And this is also not what I'm arguing, and we're far from that. However, I think that some sort of sovereign tools might be absolutely necessary in order to be able to give answers to these questions. Um, And at the same time, and I think this is important, I think um, there's been like a sort, and I feel like Varoufakis like sort of like always aims into this and this this is something that confuses me uh, as if racism or xenophobia was only a problem of the far right. It's not. It's a structural part of capitalism. The EU itself is a highly racist project. You just, you know, 
yeah, we do have free mm-hmm. movement. Mm-hmm. But look at what's happening since the crisis. Like even the OECD has given these numbers mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. that there's massive waves of migrations between OECD countries, basically from younger and not only younger, but from people coming from the periphery into the core of Europe to do precarious, shitty paid jobs. Sorry for the word, shitty paid jobs uh, in the core of Europe, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we we it's it's still a project that formed by competing nation states, meaning by national workers that are still competing with each other. So the national question here is the really interesting one in the immediate future, because the thing that strikes me when I look at the, the, the horizon for moments of political contestation in Europe, the next one is Italy. There is a constitutional referendum, which is going to be on December the 4th. This is Uh, Matteo Renzi's attempt to reform the Senate in Italy, bring in some highly, increasingly kind of centralized powers for the executive. Um, The constitutional referendum, you know, is is supposed to guarantee political stability, but it will certainly ease Renzi's desire to push through uh, labor market reforms, reforms that will make it easier to sort of, uh, you know, boost uh, competition and you know various things like that. So, so this this is and you know the left in Italy is largely opposing the referendum. If it's a no, if the if the country votes no, Renzi's government will probably fall. It's not clear what would happen then. Uh, the movements in Italy, as as David Broder outlines in the book, are, are strange and heterodox. The Movimento Cinque Stelle is hu- hugely ideologically uh, confused uh, and 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 variable. But on top of that, we have the exposure of Monte dei Paschi, the, this large, extremely large bank, and in fact, the, 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 the finance sector in general in Italy is extremely endangered. Uh, Renzi, uh, you know, has suggested that he might even want to circumvent the EU uh, in terms of lending support to his country's financial sector. That is obviously going to go down very, very badly with the ECB. So, uh, you know, and government debt in Italy at the moment stands at I think about 140% of, of GDP. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, you know, it's this is, a, and it doesn't look like actually Monte de Paschi will be able to pull off its recapitalization. There's extreme worry about this in the markets in the last couple of days. So we have a, a kind of brewing financial situation in Italy. Uh, we have a kind of popular situation in which, like, as elsewhere, uh, the government has gone to the people and this referendum seems to be taking on other elements. It's not actually just a constitutional question. It's a question about all sorts of other social issues. So what do we, you know, the question is now, uh, what do we think will happen there? And what are the opportunities for the left now in, in, in across Europe uh, if Italy blows up? <laughs> I can't answer to that. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just, um, I, I don't know. Mm. Because that depends on so many things. That depends on how the left is able to capitalize on that or not. Or uh, if we can see other, you know, we also don't know what's going to happen in Portugal. Right now, mm-hmm. Portugal has a mm-hmm. government of the traditional now liberalized social democracy party, uh, which is called the Socialist Party in Portugal, because all our parties have very left-wing <laughs> names since they were formed during the revolution. Um, um and supported in parliament, so it's, it's a minority government, supported in parliament through an agreement by the left bloc, the party that I'm a member of, so the radical left party and the Portuguese Communist Party. Um, and we're right now negotiating the state budget for next year. And I know there was a space of maneuvering that was given to us the last year. And my take on that is that this space of maneuvering happened because... Uh, social democracies are crumbling down around Europe. You know, there is a process of pasokification around uh, all social democratic parties around Europe. And for social democracy to pull to the left, try to co-opt the left, was their only way of revival? Because if they would agree with the right and do agreements with the right, they would just end because that's what happened with PASOK. That's what happened, you know, in a way, that's what is the trajectory of the the Socialist Party in France, the PSOE, SPD in Germany, and so on. And now there's even the discussion that in Germany, in the next national elections next year, there might be a possibility of a a red-red-green national coalition, right? So there's so many things happening right now. Um, that Italy might spark something, or it might also not. And so I, I, I can't answer. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. We've got elections in France and Germany next year, haven't yeah. we? Um, and there's, of course, this this referendum. In terms of the 
Pasolification hypothesis, a lot of sort of saving labour types will go, well, look, the uh, Italian PD or Trudeau. I mean, let's leave Trudeau alone, right? The Italian <laughs> PD, look, they're, they're in government. It's like, well, do you know what they got in 2013? They got 29.5%. The coalition they were part of got slightly more, okay? Uh, Renzi's never won an election, right? It was Bersani, then he handed over to like his brother in law, Enrico Letta, or they had some kind of weird relationship. And that's this guy. He's never even won an election. This to me, really, the fact that this is the most compelling party of centre-left government in Europe right now, and it's in the state it's in, mm. really belies just how big mm-hmm. the crisis is. And I agree with you. I mean, your this this view of a potential red-red-green coalition in Germany next year looks quite likely, more likely, after the uh, local elections we saw in Berlin, in Berlin. Yeah. a week ago? Yeah, no, two weeks ago. Two weeks yeah, ago, right? Weeks. And one of the most astonishing statistics for me was, and I know East Berlin is, an, is a rare, you know, it's again, it's not Germany, it's not typical, was that the AFD and Die Linke between them got 40% of the vote. Yeah, it's the polarisation of the crisis. Which is absolutely amazing. I mean, when those guys get over 50%, I mean, that's just really, really remarkable. That's a paradigm shift in terms of German politics. James, uh, we've got two minutes left. Do you have any final thoughts, any roundup thoughts? One minute? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, Kuvalak is quoting Christoph Wolf, uh, was bleibt, mm-hmm. what's left? Mm-hmm. Um, and the two questions that emerge for me from this book are questions about orientations to power and to transition, uh, how you move from administering the capitalist state to beyond it. And, and those questions are both open uh, and they're also, I think, really vitally important. Catherine, any final remarks? Yeah, I think James is right. And I think that's precisely the discussion that this book like tends to open and go on because we don't have any clear answers to it. And that's OK. But I think before we have clear answers to anything, it's good that we ask the right questions. And I think that is a right question to be asked. And just as a final, final remark, I think we we have to like prevent ourselves from like wanting to think that we know exactly how everything's going to shift and that understand that due to concrete circumstances, probably the shifts are going to happen at contradictory, uneven levels, and we have to be prepared for it. On that note, Catherine Pinsip, thank, thank you very much. Thank you so much. James, you've been great. The book is fantastic. <laughs> European Revolt, out with Haymarket. Buy it now. Very good. Great gloss on what happens next in Europe. My name is Aaron Bastani. See you same time, same place next week. Bye. Navarra FM is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find out more about our work, head to navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media. Media for a different politics.